like me, allowing me to stand right here and sing praises to you, to honor you. And I pray that you'll make yourself known and real to anyone who will seek you in this room, to anyone who will open their hearts. Um, may we experience your great love, and may we show that love to everybody we encounter. Thank you that we can say that we love you because you first loved us. What a great thing. What an incredible thing. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Thank you guys for singing. You are awesome. Have a seat. Everybody, welcome to the living room where we also have a fashion show next door. That's awesome. It's okay, we were loud. We'll let them be loud. Hey, my name is Sam. Like I said, so glad that you guys are here. Uh, and if you're just joining us, maybe for the first time, maybe you missed a couple of weeks, uh, we are on the tail end of a series uh, that we've been calling Greater. Uh, this is part four. Next week will be the last week of this series, and we've got uh, a two-week break uh, from the living room, maybe only one week. We're trying to figure that out. Like I said, we don't have the room, so we're trying to get creative. Uh, and then we're kicking off a two-week series in November, and then December 2nd, we'll have our Christmas illuminated uh, living room gathering, which is going to be awesome, our Christmas service, so you definitely don't want to miss that. But this, this series great that we've been doing, we, we've, we've four weeks in, this is week four, and really the whole idea of the series was that we believe that <clears throat> KSU had humble beginnings, right? KSU, if you know anything about KSU, used to be a community college, then it was a trans... Uh, uh, commuter school, uh, and then it was a backup school, and now it's the second largest university in the state of Georgia, and yeah, which is awesome, football team, who are pretty good considering it's their first season, I have season tickets, believe that, and really, we just thought, hey, as great as KSU is, we believe that God wants it to be greater, and the whole idea of greater, the subtitle of the series is Our Response to the Love of God. We believe that as we, collectively, followers of Jesus, respond to the love of God, then we believe God's going to do great things in you and through you. In week one, we unpacked the love of God. And then week two, we talked about how love should flow through you as a response to greater love that came for you, which is just an amazing, amazing idea. And then last week, we talked about the importance of making people a priority. And we said that every great thing that Jesus ever did when he was here on earth had people at the center of it. That every great thing he did at the center of all of it was making people a priority. And we asked this question, what would it look like to slow down just enough to remember that every person we interact with day in and day out is a person for whom Jesus died? And so we're here for, on, the, on this, this 
particular message, week four. And I'm really excited because we're unpacking this idea of ambition. So I hope you guys are ready because I'm really excited about this message. So I don't know what you think about when you think about ambition. I don't know if you would consider yourself to be an ambitious person. I think I'm relatively ambitious. And the definition of the World Wide Web, uh, the definition of uh, ambition from the World Wide Web, aka Wikipedia, the source of, of all knowledge, right, um, says that ambition is a strong desire to do or to achieve something. A strong desire to do or to achieve something. And like I said, I, I consider myself a relatively ambitious person. I think when I was younger, I was more ambitious. I think kids are relatively ambitious because they don't, they don't know any better, right? You just kind of do stuff because you just, you just don't know. And so when I was in elementary school, I always wanted to do what the big kids did, like probably you. And so I lived in a neighborhood, and in my house um, faced a cul-de-sac. And in the cul-de-sac, all the big kids always played street hockey. I wanted to play street hockey, right? So they're on rollerblades, and they've got like, like pucks, and they've got the street hockey sticks. I mean, they had the whole deal. But I'm in elementary school, and they're in high school. We're talking like a five to six, seven-year gap in difference and about a three or four-foot height difference, right? Like I was really small. Like I'm already kind of small. I'm 26. I was really small when I was 10. So um, it was just it was crazy, but I really wanted to play. So I did what any elementary school age kid would do. I would just nag my mom. Mom, I want to play. Mom, I want to play. And then after she just got so fed up with it, she did what any great mom would do. She went out there and she talked to those boys, right? That was back when I would still find a tattle, right? It was a cool thing to tell on people. So I told on them. So my mom went out there and started talking. Like, hey, listen, can my son play? And they kind of pushed back. My mom, she's Middle Eastern, right? A little fiery. And so she said, look, my son's going to come out here and play and you're going to like it. And so I went out there. Here's the deal, though. Ten years old, right? Didn't have rollerblades and I didn't have a hockey stick. So I went out there in Nikes and a metal baseball bat. And so I walk out of the cul-de-sac, and I'm like, I'm ready to go. You know what I mean? I was ready. I mean, I was ambitious. So they put me in goal, and I'll tell you what, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. It was, a, it was terrifying. That thing went way faster in person than when I was watching out of my window. And I realized that a baseball bat is a really dumb substitute for a hockey stick. And so that did not last very long. Right? So I don't know what you think about when you think about ambition. Maybe you have your ambitious moments. But I asked a good friend of mine, Mr. Google, what came to his mind when he thought about ambition. And so I just searched it. And these were images that came up. These are in the top ten images that came up when you hear about ambition. So maybe for some of you, when you think about ambition, you think about some kind of success right? This guy's striving for the finish line in a suit. So stupid. Uh, maybe, maybe you think about like achieving or progress or, or making your way up or climbing some kind of ladder, right? Metaphorically. Maybe when you think about ambition, you think about world domination, right? Like Alexander the Great who took over so much of the world and then died from a disease from a mosquito. Tough way to go out. Um, maybe, maybe you think about doing the impossible, right? If my goldfish did that, I would immediately believe in God. Um, and so, that maybe, and then maybe you think about doing something that no one thinks you can do. <laughs> and so you got a baby <clears throat> eating a watermelon twice the size of its own body. So I don't know what you think about when you think about ambition, but it's so interesting, actually. I was doing research for this message, and I found out that there's a book written by this Yale professor. His name was William Casey King, and he wrote a book on the history of the word ambition. Talk about ambition, right? Like, and so he wrote a history of it, and what he found was that the word ambition today doesn't have too many negative connotations. I mean, being around ambitious people can sometimes be difficult, maybe sometimes annoying because they're so, like, driver-oriented and they want to make progress. But back um, when English colonists first settled this country at Plymouth Rock and Jamestown, uh, ambition was actually considered a vice, like it was immoral, it was considered an evil. In fact, this is what um, 
what, uh, what's his name, William Casey King wrote in his book about ambition. This is what the English colonists thought about ambition. They said that when they landed in Jamestown and Plymouth, it was considered a canker on the soul. You ever got a canker sore on your lip, right? The most annoying, painful thing. That's what they described ambition as. It was a cause of madness, an imbalance of sorts, a moth of holiness with Satan, its most notorious poster child. So that, yeah, seriously, right, crazy. So these Puritans back in the day would think of ambition as, as a sin, as something that you wanted to steer clear of, as something that no man needed to possess because the person who possessed it the most was the devil. <laughs> okay, right? Like that's a bit, that's a bit strong. That's a bit much. And there's a lot of backstory to why they thought that. We don't need to get into all of that. But I, I think that the Puritans went a little too far. I certainly don't think that about ambition. Um, but I kind of understand why they said it, but I think they missed the mark because I don't think the problem with them is ambition. I don't think ambition in and of itself is a bad thing. I think what the Puritans were describing is what fuels ambition. See, because ambition is fueled by something in and of itself. Ambition is not a bad thing to desire to do or to achieve something is a God given desire, but what fuels your ambition? What's the end goal? What's the purpose? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? And what fuels the ambition is going to determine what comes of it. And so I just have a list of three things um, that I just thought, hey, these, th th I'm just kind of give you a spectrum of what could fuel ambition and what could become of it, right? Because ambition, right, ambition can be fueled by hate, which will accomplish evil things. Um, it, it can be fueled by hate. It can be fueled by hating certain people. And even ambition fueled by hate, it will accomplish things, but it will accomplish evil things. And just go through history. I mean, you think of Hitler. I mean, he had an ambition. It was an ambition towards hating a particular group of people. And it led him to, to lead an evil that, that was just is unknown even to this day, just a horrific piece of our history. You think about 9-11. I mean, right, for, for my generation, I think you guys were probably in elementary school when that happened, I would imagine. It's one of those where you just remember where you were, right? It was, it was the ambition fueled by hate of this country that led to an act of terror that left a country devastated. And I don't mean to be morbid, okay? I'm going to turn the page here, but I just want you to see, hey, ambition can be fueled by something really, really terrible and lead to something really, really terrible. But let's kind of move to the middle of the spectrum because ambition can also be fueled by progress which will accomplish great things. I mean, you think about our world that we live in. You can get in a big piece of metal and fly over the Atlantic Ocean. Are you kidding me? I still don't understand how airplanes work. Can't explain that. I don't care what you tell me. You can. It's unbelievable. Our cell phones. You can talk to people, right? Like our iPhones. It's unbelievable what we can do with our phones. If you got an Android, you are welcome here. Um, you know, but progress, automobiles, I mean, there are so many, Facebook, right? I know Facebook's not the cool thing anymore, but that's what opened the door to social media, to Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram and all of that stuff, right? I mean, things fueled by progress, inventions, I mean, the light bulb, you can go on and on and on and on and on. Ambition fueled by progress or success or achievement or intuition can lead to great things. But then the third thing that I want to talk about today and where I want to camp out is that ambition fueled by love I believe, will accomplish even greater things. That, that ambition fueled by loving other people, ambition fueled by putting others before ourselves, I believe, will accomplish greater things because it's going to lead to impacting lives in a special way. I think of Martin Luther King Jr., who gave his life, literally and figuratively, 
to breaking down barriers and saying, it does not matter the color of your skin, you matter. And that there should be no division. And it was his love for people and even his love for the Lord that led him and that ambition to do an amazing thing for our country. And we still feel the effects of that today. You think of, of Mother Teresa, right, giving her life to, to orphans and saying, hey, I'm going to give away my life to these people who don't get to feel love and I'm going to love them. Ambition fueled by love led to significant impact and influence. And so I wonder tonight what it would look like if for every single one of us, whether you consider yourself an ambitious person or not, if we allowed ourselves to have ambition that was fueled by love, what would that look like? What would it look like to have an ambition fueled by love for other people? Because as we're about to find out here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is where we're going to be tonight, the Apostle Paul unpacks this idea of ambition. And he talks about what it means for us, what it should be fueled by, and what the result would be if we took it seriously. And the reason why we're talking about ambition is because I believe that this place can become a greater place, that campus and your class and your fraternity and your sorority and your sports team and your roommates or whatever circle of influence that you have can become greater if we had an ambition that was fueled by love for other people. So we're going to turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's going to be up on the screen though um, if you don't have your Bible with you. If you don't have one, that is totally fine. First Corinthians chapter, and that's not true. That was a couple weeks ago. Let's try that again. First Thessalonians. Thanks for finding that funny. I appreciate it. First Thessalonians, feel free to laugh anytime. First Thessalonians 4, we're going to be in verse 9. So the Apostle Paul writes, he says this, he says, now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Verse 10, and in fact, you do love all of the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. So he's looking at these people in Thessalonica, to the Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica, and he says, hey, listen, I, we don't have to, you know, teach you how to love. God has taught you how to love. You know this idea of love, but here's what we want you to do. You're doing a pretty good job at it. You're loving each other, but we want you to love more and more and more. We want your love for each other to become greater and greater and greater and even more so than it is now. You're doing pretty good, but we want you. We urge you, Paul says. We urge you. I'm not commanding you. I'm trying to compel you. I'm trying to urge you. I am pleading with you to let your love grow greater and greater and greater and greater. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to the next couple of verses to unpack what that looks like. But just remember that everything we're about to read is under the umbrella of love. Everything we're about to read, everything we're about to unpack, and everything we're about to learn how it applies to our life is under this umbrella of loving other people with a greater and greater and greater kind of love. And so the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 11, and he says this. He says, make it your ambition, there's our word, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That, that your, your desire should be to lead a quiet life, that the purpose of your life, that what you should be striving to do to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What the Apostle Paul is not talking about, he's not talking about a physical quiet life, right? He's not saying, hey, look, man, like you need to use your inside voices. You need to use your six-inch voices. 
so stupid that they told us that as little kids. What does that even mean, right? He's not talking about a physical act of being quieter or not talking as much. He's not saying, hey, you need to share the gospel less with people. He's not talking about the physical act of talking. What the Apostle Paul is doing with this whole passage, and specifically with this idea of living and leading a quiet life, is he is describing for us the manner in which we should live. He's describing for us the posture with which a follower of Jesus should lead their life. And to unpack what he means by quiet life, I'd love to talk about what a loud life looks like, right? A loud life, someone who lives a loud life, it's not about how often they talk or how loud they talk. It's more about, hey, someone who lives a loud life is somebody who puts all of the attention and focus on themselves. Um, someone who lives a loud life, when somebody is loud, they get noticed. And so this idea of living a loud life is always being the center of attention, very me-centered, has a hard time really showing any kind of humility because somebody who's living a loud life is more concerned about themselves than other people. And as I was kind of thinking about maybe what a, what a loud life could look like, I really don't mean this negatively. I'm just trying to paint a picture. I kind of kept thinking about my boy Kanye, okay? He's a very loud human being, okay? His life is very loud. I'm not hating on you, I promise. Like, I, I listen to your stuff, okay? But just kind of a loud personality, a loud life. And when he wants to say it, he's just going to say it. It's all good, Kanye. Do your thing, okay? But the Apostle Paul says... Hey, we should lead to live a quiet life. And the Apostle Paul is describing a quiet life in this way. A quiet life is someone who lives humbly, someone who's not afraid and not concerned about putting others' needs before their own. In fact, the actual Greek word there for quiet literally means peaceable. That somebody who is peaceable, someone who is easy to befriend, someone who's easy to be around, and someone who is very, very approachable. That someone who lives a quiet life thinks before they speak. And someone who lives a quiet life has no problem, as I said earlier, putting the needs of others before their own. And so the Apostle Paul says, hey, you should make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And then he goes on to talk about what the rest of that looks like. He says this. He says that uh, to, to lead a quiet life, make a mission to lead a quiet life, and then to mind your own business and to work with your hands. To mind your own business and to work with your hands. Well, what is, what, is, what is he talking about? Let's unpack the mind your own business first. Again, the Apostle Paul is not saying you should live your life with blinders on and never focus on anybody else. He's not saying, hey, you should never concern yourself with other people. You should just forget about other people, do your thing, mind your own business, get your degree, and get out. That's not what he's saying. I think there are two things he's trying to communicate to us, and one of them is this, that there is a difference between caring and being nosy. There's, there's a difference here between caring for somebody and legitimately concerning yourself with somebody and being nosy, right? When you care for someone, what do you do? You go straight to that person. You ask that person, how can I help? You ask that person, hey, what's wrong and what do you need from me? You go directly to that person and you figure out what is the best possible way, how can I love this person? And your need to know information isn't based on, I just want to know because I want to know, right? We all have those friends. No, no, no. It's based on actually caring and loving for the other person. Usually, when you care for somebody, it's just between you and that person, right? doesn't necessarily have to include anybody else, and maybe no one else finds out. On the other hand, being nosy is very different. We all have the friend who's got to know everything, who's always asking questions, who always wants to know what's going on, who wants to know who you're talking to and like does it matter, who wants to know who you're texting, right? We all have those friends. When you're being nosy, you typically don't go straight to the person. You do a runaround. 
You go to their, you go, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Thanks for laughing. You go to their friend. You go to their, to their roommate. You go to their little. You go to whoever. You're like, hey, yeah, you're like, I would never do that. I'm, you know, she's my little. But you would, but kidding. So when you're nosy, you try to get information from people. You try to find out secondhand from people. And usually when you're being nosy, let's just be real for a second, you don't really care about the person. When you're being nosy, you want to know information for information's sake. Maybe you want to make yourself feel better. Maybe you just selfishly want to know what's going on. And when being nosy, what so often becomes of it is gossip. And all of a sudden, you have no concern for the person, but you're talking behind their back. So I think one thing that Apostle Paul is talking about is, hey, look, are you going to care for someone? If not, hey, look, just mind your own business and go about your life. But I think there's a second thing that the Apostle Paul is describing, and I actually think this is more of the thrust of what he's getting at, is I think there's a difference between talking and walking. There's a big difference between talking and walking. We're really good at talking about what we believe in. We're really good at at talking about it and Instagramming about it and tweeting about following Jesus. But what does it actually look like to walk it? I think one thing the Apostle Paul is saying is, hey, look, you want to follow Jesus? Then follow Jesus. Don't be so concerned with other people that you're forgetting to walk yourself. Don't be so concerned about the shortcomings of people if you're going to ignore the shortcomings in your own life. Hey, if you want to inspire people to follow Jesus, then follow Jesus for yourself. I think the Apostle Paul would look at us and he would say, hey, live out your convictions before you speak about your convictions. Live out your convictions before you speak about your convictions. Because here's what's so interesting. I think a follower of Jesus who wants to live a quiet life and minding their own business, that they would live out their convictions before they speak about their convictions. And what's so interesting is this quiet life, right? Here's what we know is true. People pay more attention to action than they do words. People pay far more attention and notice your actions far more than they do just what you say. Remember, I went to uh, my freshman year, I went to the University of Georgia and uh, go dogs, even though we're not good at football. And hate it. But uh, so I went there as a freshman and I had a roommate that I went to high school with. We were, we were kind of friends. We knew each other. Okay. But uh, I knew that he didn't believe in God. He wasn't, that wasn't kind of his deal. He didn't, that wasn't something he practiced, you know, whatever, which was fine. And so I went about my, my life, man. I was following Jesus. I was learning. I was trying to figure things out. And so every morning for the first well, every morning, you know, while we lived together in a little 12 by 12 foot apartment, looked like a prison cell with a bunk bed, um, what I would do is I'd wake up and I'd have my quiet time. I would wake up in the morning before he did usually, and I'd get to my desk, I'd turn my little desk lamp on, and, and I'd read my Bible, and I'd journal, and I would pray, and I would unpack scripture, and then I would go to class, I would be nice to my roommate, we got along really well, I'd go to church, I was just doing my thing. I wasn't pressing anything. In fact, just to be honest, I thought, oh, man, I'm living, with, I'm living with him. I can, this can be an opportunity. But I never pressed my faith on him. I never told him, hey, bro, I never, this is what I think you need to think about. Hey, man, look, I read this Bible verse today. You want to hear about it? I just did my thing. I'm minding my own business. About three months into the semester, he comes to me. We're in our room, and he uh, walked on and played football, baller. And so he got back from practice. He brought me a protein shake, brought me one once a week. It was awesome. And... Uh, and he said, hey, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, what's up? And he said, hey, man, so there was the chaplain did this little devotional after practice today. And I feel like for the first time, I really believe God has a plan for my life. And I was like, man, that, that's incredible. And he goes, yeah, yeah, but you're a big part of that. And I'll never forget this. He literally said this, this, this phrase. He said, man, this whole semester, 
you've been doing this whole God thing, just minding your own business. He said, you never tried to press it on me. You woke up every morning and you just did your thing. And he was like, man, I noticed. And I want you to know, I really appreciate you giving me my space. And then he goes and invite me and say, hey, man, would you be up for walking through parts of the Bible with me once a week this semester? And I was just like, you have no idea how happy that would make me. Live out your convictions before you speak about your convictions. I'm not saying anyone has to be perfect. But, man, if they're not going to see anything modeled in your life, then your words are going to be empty. The Apostle Paul says, mind your own business. And then he goes on to say this. He goes on to say this to unpack what a quiet life might look like. He says, uh, actually, we're on the same verse, I'm sorry. The second half of it, to work with your hands. Now, give me, let me give you a little bit of context about this idea of working with your hands. So the, the Christians in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica, this is kind of sound crazy, okay? But just stick with me. If you're like not sure if you believe in God, you're going to think, we're crazy, but just, just I'm glad you're here. Um, we believe um, that Jesus is going to come back one day. Um, we believe that one day Jesus, the Son of God, is going to return to this earth and restore it to the way things were before sin came, and then people are going to go to heaven, okay? So crazy part out of the way. If you have questions about it, talk to you later. Even if you're not sure if that's real, we're really glad you're here. So the Thessalonians, they believed that it was going to happen like now, like it was imminent, like they're out on the campus green just saying, all right, Lord, it's the day. I see a cloud. I see, ah, never mind, the airplane, right? Like I don't know what, airplane, yeah, in the Bible. So they thought, they thought it was happening now. And so because they thought it was happening now, they just quit living their life. They stopped working their jobs. They stopped taking care of their responsibilities. They stopped doing the things that they needed to do because they were like, hey, what's the point, man? Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, I don't need to waste my time going to work. Why would I do that? It kind of is like this. You know, in a football game, when a team is about to win, and they've got the ball, the other team has no timeouts, and they're just trying to run the clock, what does the other team do? They spike the ball, take a knee, right? They don't need to run a play. They don't need to waste their time running a play. It's like the people in Thessalonica were just saying, on life, I'm going to take a knee, right? Jesus is coming back. I don't need to keep playing the game. Now, imagine how crazy this was. To people who didn't believe in Jesus. I just imagine somebody who owned a shop or he owned some kind of uh, store and he had people that worked there and they stopped showing up to work. And it's like, hey, Jimmy, why didn't you come to work? And he's like, boss, Jesus is coming back. Don't have to. Right. He would have thought that Jimmy was crazy. Imagine how crazy non-believers thought Christians were because they stopped doing what they were supposed to do. And their excuse was Jesus is coming back. Now. That particular scenario, I don't think is a rub for us. I don't think any of y'all like chilling on the green and then telling your teacher you didn't take the homework or take the test because you're waiting for Jesus to come back. Don't do that. It's stupid, okay? Um, but one thing that I think we learn from this is that these, these Christians in Thessalonica, they stopped doing their responsibility. Their yes stopped being their yes. Their promises, they continued to break, and they started to take advantage of people. They stopped working with their hands, and the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, will you guys wake up and stop being lunatic? Work with your hands. Do your job. Do what you promised to do. And I think for us as followers of Jesus, living a quiet life isn't being crazy loud about everything that you believe, but hey, what if it's just doing what you promised to do? Christians should be the most dependable people on the planet. Followers of Jesus should be the most dependable people ever. If you have a promise, keep your promise. Followers of Jesus should be people that they under promise and then they over deliver. 
that their yes is always a yes and their no is a no. They stick to what they say. Followers of Jesus should never take advantage of people, especially, man, followers of Jesus should never be moochers. You know what I'm talking about. You're sitting there at Chili's or Chipotle, right? And then you order your thing and you order your burrito in a bowl with chips and guac. Your friend doesn't get any because he says he's not hungry. And then he's like, hey, can I get a chip? And you're like, you're joking. And you're like, he's like, can I get some guac too? And you're like, no, that junk was 79 cents. You can get your own, right? Like, not sharing guacamole with you. You should have got your own food. No one likes a moocher. Stop taking advantage of people. Followers of Jesus should never, should never take advantage of people. And followers of Jesus should be the first people lining up to serve anybody who is in need. I feel like the apostle Paul would look at us and say, hey, work with your hands, man. Do what you promise to do. Let your yes be yes. And be dependable. And then he wraps up this part. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that, so that. If you read the Bible, and if you don't, here, watch, if, if you don't even believe in God, I would encourage you to just read the Bible. You don't even have to believe it. Just check it out. Just read it. Try a couple verses, see what you think, and then come ask us some questions. But if you're ever reading the Bible and you get to a so that, you need to stop and pay attention because a so that in the Bible separates the what from the why. The so that separates what instruction was given. And when you see a so that, you're about to find out why that instruction was given. It's the why behind the what. And it's the why that always gives the what meaning. So the Apostle Paul has given us a what. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands. He's given us that. But why? He says, so that, so that your daily life may win respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That the ambition of your life, that, that your ambition, you should strive to lead a quiet life so that you would win the respect of outsiders, of people who know nothing about God and don't want anything to do with God. And what Paul did with this passage is amazing. As I was reading through it, I kind of wanted to keep it all in order. If you're ever reading the pa a passage or something out of the Bible and you're kind of not sure how it fits together, what I found to be really helpful is make a chart. Making a chart is, is really helpful, kind of orders it out. So I made a chart for you and this helped me study it. And this is what Paul did with this passage. Remember, he started with love at the very top. Hey, the very umbrella of all of this is love. And then he went into what our ambition should be to lead a quiet life, to mind our own business, work with our hands, so that our daily life, the mundane, the everyday living, the everything that we do, the culmination of all that we are, the things that we deem insignificant, should be to win the respect of outsiders. That, that we should live in a way to win the respect of people who are far from God and don't follow Jesus. And remember, this is what's so cool about what Paul did. Let's go to the next slide. It all started with love. That there is this direct connection with expressing love via winning the respect of outsiders. And what blows my mind is this, dude, and this is why I was so excited about this message, is that you can express the love of God by living in a way that wins respect from outsiders who are far from God. That you can express the love of God by living in a way that wins the respect of those who are far from 
God. So often when we think of loving and when we think about expressing love, we think about doing something directly to the person. Well, the Apostle Paul here is making a really cool connection that we can even express love and express love that was given to us first because God loved us. That we can express that and represent followers of Jesus well by living in a way that wins respect from people who are far from God. And why is that so important? Why is the Apostle Paul landing on this major idea? It's because respect builds a bridge to influence. Respect builds a bridge to influence. That if you don't have respect, right, there's not going to be any trust. And if you don't have any trust, there's not going to be any influence. And so that means that the way that you live actually matters. The decisions that you make actually matter. And there are thousands of students on this campus who don't know Jesus. There are thousands of students on this campus who need hope. There are thousands of students on this campus who don't know what it feels like to be loved. And there are thousands of students on this campus that need to know there's a heavenly father that loves them enough to send a son to die for them. But at the same time, you ready? There are thousands of students who think Christians are very judgmental. There are thousands of students on this campus who think that Christians just talk a lot but don't walk anything out. There are thousands of students on this campus that think Christians are weird and hypocritical and believe in fairy tales. The way that you live matters. And here's the interesting thing about respect. Paul says that we would win the respect of people. You can win respect means that you can also lose respect really, really quickly with decisions that you make. In fact, it is a lot easier to lose respect than it is to gain respect. And it is impossible, students. It is impossible to achieve respect if there is a discrepancy between how you behave and what you believe. It is impossible to achieve respect if there is a discrepancy between how you behave and what you believe. There is no easier way to lose respect from outsiders than to do what some of these people in Thessalonica did. Live in a way that took advantage of people. Live in a way that was loud and obnoxious. Live in a way where they didn't keep promises. You want to lose respect really, really quickly? Talk about loving Jesus, but don't live like it. Talk about loving people and the importance of it, but don't act like it when you get angry at somebody who doesn't get your order right. What would it look like in the mundane daily life to win the respect of outsiders? Because Paul is saying that the way that you live really, really matters. And that God can work in the daily stuff. God can work in the normal conversations. God can work in the, hey, how are you, good morning parts of our lives. And it's impossible to achieve that respect. If there's a discrepancy between what you believe and how you behave. So what would it look like? What would it look like for you to start living your life in a way to lead a quiet life? To, to, uh, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business and to work with your hands. And win respect of outsiders on this campus that have a, have a, a thought of what Christians actually are that have a, a pre, presupposed reputation of who we are, what would it look like to reverse that? Here's what I know is that if a group of us went out, if a group of us started living on this campus in a way that the Apostle Paul describing, we are inviting God to do even greater things.
that God can work and God can express his love in ways that we could have never imagined. And if we could begin to win the respect of people, all of a sudden that opens the door to a conversation. If we could win the respect of outsiders, all of a sudden that would open the door to an invitation. And all of a sudden God is using you to influence the lives of people in a way that you could have never imagined. So I would challenge you to ask yourself, what would it look like to live in a way to where your daily life would begin to win the respect of outsiders. And be careful the way that you live because it matters. And God designed this whole thing. This is what's crazy. He designed this whole thing to use broken people like you and me to reach other broken people. Relational, not transactional. Relational. And the bridge to influence is built on respect. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. We invite you to do great things in us and through us. Father, we invite you to flip this campus upside down in a really, really cool way. And we would ask you to use us. We would ask you that you would give us courage and boldness. Father, and I pray that this group of students and myself would be a beacon of light and hope on this campus. Father, that, that when students on this campus and even faculty and anybody that we interact with would come on this campus and see us, that they wouldn't think these weird Christians who don't know what they're doing, these hypocritical people who don't live out what they believe, I pray that before we even open our mouths, they would see a reflection of your son. They would see a reflection of your grace, a reflection of your love, and that as we begin to win the respect of these outsiders, that you would use that to do even greater things. We ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus.